We are in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I didn't finish this last week, and I purposely stopped, although we read it, but purposely stopped at verse 22, and I'm going to pick up there again. I want to remind you of a couple of things about this passage. This is the third stage of three, as Saul is continuing his downward spiral. Uh, chapter 13, he loses his dynasty, and he loses the the right of his children to inherit the throne. Number second part, part two is chapter 14, where he gives his people, in effect, an order, and they uh, blatantly disobey the order. About Jonathan, about that somewhat ridiculous vow he made everybody take in the midst of a battle. Now, the third and final step is chapter 15, where God takes the throne from him. Um, he is, from God's perspective, the Spirit of God will depart from Saul, we'll read about this in a minute, and will come upon David, which we'll be talking about in the next section. I draw your attention to verse 20, just to note how many times Saul uses the pronoun I. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amaleks to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things that are destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, you'll see, and uh, we didn't get a chance to emphasize all that last week because we ran out of time, how Paul, Saul is contrasting himself with the people. And in that contrast, what is he trying to do? Elevating himself at the expense of the people. Let's put it another way. To preserve himself, he scapegoats the people. Let's put it another way. I obey, the people disobey. Now, all three of those statements, I just took the same basic point and looked at it three different ways. It's false. He is lying. He's misrepresenting the reality. It is not only the people. It is he as the king. He did not obey the voice of the Lord. He was not instructed to capture Agag who was the king. He was instructed to kill him. And all of this goes back to stuff we talked about last week. But for God, God is, and I'm sure you know this, but God is not interested in us rationalizing our sin. God is not interested in us scapegoating, blaming someone else for what we did. God is not interested in us taking the responsibility off our own shoulders for what we have done and putting it on someone else's. Saul is, this is his typical demeanor. He is not a man of faith. He is a man of fear. And so Samuel then responds, and this is where we left off. This is an extraordinarily important statement from, from Samuel's mouth. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. He's saying that because Saul had just said in the previous verse, uh, the people saved some of this stuff, these animals, to sacrifice to you, which is not true, but that's what he says. So Saul tur Samuel turns that and says, you know what? Keep your sacrifices. God doesn't want them. What he wants is obedience. And we don't have time to do this, but if you look at the prophets, you see it in Amos, you see it in Hosea, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in Isaiah, where the prophets will say the same thing. We're going a little bit ahead into the history of Israel, but the prophets will say the same thing. God doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. Let's remind ourselves of something. Worship follows obedience. And Saul is trying to, to upend all of this to justify himself. He's the classic narcissist. And so what, what Samuel is doing is forcing him, whether he's going to accept it or not, but forcing him to face up to what he really did. So he makes this conclusion, which is a propositional statement, the end of verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of ram. Because, and this is going forward about a thousand years, this is what the Pharisees will do. 
The Pharisees will push all this sacrificial stuff, all this legalistic ritual stuff, but they won't walk with the Lord in obedience. And Jesus doesn't want anything to do with them. So he's saying the same thing. He, Samuel, saying the same thing here. God doesn't want your sacrifices if you're not going to obey him. Because all you're doing is you're putting the facade of worship over something that's corrupt. You're putting a facade of righteousness over spiritual deadness. So then he adds, this is what we did not have a chance to get into last week. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. Now that, honestly, gentlemen, that is really a remarkable statement. Because what Samuel has done now is he's going from the statement about to obey is better than sacrifice to couch what Saul is done around the word rebellion. Now, just think about that for a moment. Because, and this is absolutely correct, it's spot on. But what Samuel is saying is, Saul, you must face up to something. Your defiance of God. God gave you clear directive of what he wanted you to do with the Amalekites. That was very clear. There was no ambiguity in the command. You chose not to do that. In fact, you chose to keep some of the spoil for yourself and then push it off and blame the people. But nonetheless, there's only one word for that. It's rebellion. But then he says rebellion is as, that's a comparative as. He's comparing rebellion to the sin of divination. What's divination? That's not a word we use very often. Yeah, it's magic. It's sorcery. It's it's all kind of it's all kind of ritualistic stuff to try to determine the future. In in the ancient Eastern world, uh, in Babylonia, for example, in the court, they, the, the the king of the Babylonian Empire had a whole bunch of people. They were they were called magi who would try to tell him what the future is going to hold. They had all kinds of rituals, all kinds of, of, of ways in which they tried to predict the future. And what Samuel is saying is rebellion is like the sin of divination. You're trying to control the future. You're trying to leverage your control of the future. instead of trusting God. Rebellion, as with divination, is an example of insubordination to the will of God. This is a very, very strong statement that Samuel is making here. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a form of you trying to have control over your future, which you really don't, but you trying to have control over your future through the sin of divination, which means you are actually saying, I am not going to trust God with my future. I'm not going to put my faith in him that he is in control, superintending events to accomplish his purposes. I'm going to use my means and my methodology to try to seize control of my future. And that's rebellion. Because you can't do that. And then he adds something. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption. Presumption is to presume something, to demand something. And he says presumption, to presume upon God, to presume upon your methodology is actually a form of idolatry. You're putting someone else, you're putting someone who has this this spirit of divination to control your future, and you're really putting confidence in that ritual, that art, that person instead of God, and that's idolatry. It's pretty strong language here that that, uh, Samuel is leveling against Saul. Uh, These were capital offenses. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's a whole list of these various acts of divination that Israel is supposed to stay away from. Don't do any of this. And, and if, if you did them, 
or if you presumed upon them, that was a capital offense in the law. Very serious. What do you What do you mean when you say capital? Yeah. Execution. You lose your life. Yeah. Something we don't. Nobody knows anything about that in the United States anymore. Is, is anybody of uh, part of the Jewish? You know, because the Jewish religion right now is kind of vast differences between one group or another. Is any group of uh, uh, Jewish people who still believe in those kind of punishments and those kind of codes today or not? You think about it. You mean like executing for a cult thing? Is that what you mean? I don't think they execute, but you look at those kind of actions and sins and, and, and in the same lens of the Old Testament. The, the nation state of Israel has basically outlawed capital punishment. They do not practice capital punishment. They made an exception when they kidnapped and brought to trial Edel Feichmann. In the, in, in the 1960s. He was, he was the exception. And they made that exception because of the horrific things he did with the Holocaust and so on. But the state official does not practice capital punishment. Um, but I'm actually talking about the sin itself. Like, you know, there's oh. lots of countries. Like, I'm trying to compare that with, with Islam. You know, in Islam, there's a lot of, you know, the same thoughts. They do not practice it, but they, in, in the hearts and the minds, when somebody does this kind of actions or immorality or anything, they look down at that person as if they commit that punishment on them uh, by virtue, not by by action. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Uh, leaving aside Islam, not to, not talk about that, but in terms of, of Jewish people today. And I'm even going to separate Jewish people today from the state of Israel. That's two separate entities, actually. But uh, in Israel today, and even among Orthodox Jews who attempt to devote themselves to obedience to the law, they are thoroughly inconsistent in how they do it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, that's not, I'm not being judgmental. That's just a fact. They're thoroughly inconsistent in how they try to practice and apply the law and all the strictures of the law, and even including something like this. And so it's, but it's, it's part of the, it's part of the, the, the immense difficulty of being a Jewish person today, because your, your Jewishness up until AD 70, your Jewishness was defined by the temple, by the high priest, by the sacrificial system and all the ceremonial law. When Rome destroyed the temple in AD 70, in August of AD 70, and all killed and executed the high priests and all that stuff, then everything that defined Judaism is gone. So now who are we, what are we? And as they were then dispersed by the empire throughout the Mediterranean and ultimately through the world, that enhanced that. And that is, is not original thought with me by any stretch. The Jewish person today has a massive identity crisis. We do not know who we are. And uh, up until that time, by that time, I mean the creation of the state of Israel in, in the spring of 1948, there was nothing even to identify yourself. But now there's a nation state, which is a Jewish state, and it's the homeland of the Jewish people. Geography, and so that became the new identity. We're now tied to this state. But they still they don't practice anything that deals with their sin. They don't practice anything that brings... Um, atonement for sin, they don't do any of that. And so, therefore, do not expect them to consistently practice what God wants them to do in the law, which, of course, Jesus fulfilled, and now you're in a new covenant relationship with him if you accept it by faith. It, it's just, it's an, I have lots of Jewish friends, I know a lot of them in Israel, I have a lot of friends there, and when I'm around them, you just see that tension. And so in the 19th century in the United States and in some parts of Europe, Reform Judaism crept in. Okay, now we're going to accommodate to the modern world. We're going to do away with all the kosher food laws and all that kind of stuff. So now what are you? Well, I'm an American who happens to be a Jew. And so I live like an American. I'm, I'm going to follow all of the cultural tradition of American, but I will go to synagogue on Saturday night. <laughs> Now, I'm, I really, that was a long answer to your question, but uh, Israel and the nation state of Israel 
is struggling with this too because it's such a divided country. If any of you have ever been to Israel, you go to Jerusalem and you go to Tel Aviv, you are in two totally different, not that many miles away, about 80 miles away. You're in to- you think you're in totally two totally different worlds because this is Orthodox Judaism in the old city of Jerusalem. In Tel Aviv or Haifa, you think you're in Chicago or New York. And I, I mean, that, that, that's, that is the struggle with a Jewish person today. And, and it, it, it's that struggle that continues intensely. And so they, and you're seeing that now because of the October 7th massacre, they are now defending their country. They will defend their country to the death. They will do, no. they don't care what the world says. This, this is a threat to the existential existence of Israel. And we will fight and defend our country. And you, you know what they're doing right now at the hospitals there in Gaza City. We know what's underneath those hospitals. We know there are tunnels with weapons and all that stuff, and we're going to root them out. But it, it, it really, it's a, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult issue for the Jewish person today in 2023. It could be all made much easier if they would recognize Jesus as a Messiah. But they don't do that. Some do. Oh, praise the Lord. I have many friends who are Messianic Jews, but still the majority do not. That's I got to get back to the text, but he won't let me. <laughs> no, well, then maybe this should be obvious by now. In verse 20, when Saul starts out by claiming obedience, but he's not obeying. Okay. Heavens, no. Or lying, or what, what's... Oh, he's. <laughs> You know, Rob, he's rationalizing his sin, and he's trying to say, well, you know, Lord, I sort of obeyed you, but oh, by the way, I, I obeyed you. Oh, and by the way, I brought Agag, the king of, I did that. Well, that's not what you were supposed to do. And I devoted the Amal- Am- Amalekites to destruction. No, you didn't. <laughs> Some you did. I mean, let's think of it this way. Does God delight in partial obedience? Let's just look at this right. There are ten commandments. Let's look at it the, the way a Jewish person. Uh, there are ten commandments. Lord, I kept eight of them. Is that okay? Is that how the Lord's getting partial obedience is okay with the Lord? Ninety percent. Yeah, you're you know it's a nine to ten. You know, see, that's what Saul Saul is trying to do. What? What is the norm for so many people? I sort of obeyed you, Lord. The Spirit was there. So that's okay, right? And Samuel says, no, it's not. And there's something else you must remember, which we really emphasize. Saul is the king. And the king, according to Deuteronomy 17, which we've studied numerous, numerous times here, the king is to be the shepherd of Israel. He is to show the people what it looks like to walk with the Lord according to his law. He is to immerse himself, his mind and his heart, in the law of God. He's to meditate upon it every day. That's what the text says. And there are other things he's not supposed to do. Saul didn't do that. And so as, as the representative model of what Israel's supposed to be, Saul is a catastrophic failure. And leaders are always called to a higher standard in God's economy of things. Always, not most of the time, always. And when a leader falls, that has implication for everyone that he leads. Because what happens is when a leader falls, the people that he's leading suffer. And that, is, that happens in history. It happens in, in biblical history, and it happens in, in every area. It happens in a family. When a father falls into sin, it affects the entire family. When a father decides to commit adultery and betray his wife, it affects the entire family. A leader is always called to a higher standard, and when a leader fails, it impacts everyone that is under his rule. And that's what's happening with this one. And you will see the same is fast forwarding because it'll be a while till we get there. But when we get to Second Samuel chapter eleven and twelve. You see the marvelous text of David in the first ten chapters. He's try, it's unbelievable the triumphs he makes. How God is with him and he's dependent on the Lord. And what happens? His character flaw comes to the surface. He never conquered lust. 
and he takes another man's uh, wife to bed, executes the execution of her husband, and the rest of his family falls into disarray, and the entire kingdom falls into disarray. There's a civil war, and the entire nation suffers because the king disobeyed the Lord. And that's what we see was that's why Saul, excuse me, that's why Samuel is now in the language he's using. You, Saul, must understand the seriousness of what you just did. So we're transferring now, as we sit here in the New Testament, where Christ went to the cross, which eliminated the law of the Old Testament. Uh, That's the wrong word. I don't mean to interrupt you. Fulfilled. (laughs) It didn't eliminate it. Because the moral law of God still stands. Right. It's not eliminated. And so we have an example of Jesus Christ as being our model. And when we accept that model as our personal Savior, Jesus Christ, then we have the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to help us provide guidance. So the transfer of like Saul uh, and for us today, stay away from Saul's example, but to be in God's will is to follow, um, accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and to follow them, the leading of the Holy Spirit as we ask him for guidance and direction in our lives on history. Well, not only guidance and direction, but for the power and enablement to obey. Uh, Saul was filled with the Spirit. Saul had resources that God had given him. You and I have additional resources that God gives us to walk in obedience. So when we disobey, when we willingly, intentionally disobey what the Lord wants us to do, we're even more culpable because we have more resources. You have more revelation, you have more resources than the Old Testament saint. Who has more revelation, you or Noah? Yeah. You have more revelation. Do you understand what I mean by that question, revelation? No, Noah, Noah hears God speak. Noah, but you and I have 66 books of written revelation of God. We have God's program. We have everything God wants us to know. We have details about who he is. We have his plan. We know his redemptive plan. We know all about Jesus. Who's more accountable? You are. And I don't mean you. I mean collectively all of us, because we have more revelation. The more light you have, the more accountable you are. And so God holds us accountable because of his revelation and because of his spirit and the other resources that he gives us in the new covenant. We have the new covenant community of the Lord. And the new covenant community of the Lord has the resources to walk in obedience with him. If we choose not to draw on those resources, that's the tragedy. <clears throat> then he concludes, he, Samuel, concludes at the end of verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. And notice, Lord, there's Yahweh. He has also rejected you from being king. That's profound. <laughs> His disobedience. And let's, let's use the word Samuel uses. His rebellion resulted in his loss of the kingdom. It's all such a tragedy. Uh, He's such a tragedy. Now Saul responds in the next verse, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, And your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Can we think biblically about that verse? He's confessing to to Samuel instead of God. Okay. Anything Anything other comments about Saul's statement? I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But he adds... Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He didn't fear God and didn't, and didn't 
Well, may God's voice. Yeah. Here again. <laughs> so is unwilling. He is unwilling to be honest with the Lord. He's unwilling to own up to what God wants. Do you see a contrite, repentant spirit in verse 24? You do not see that. I will encourage, we will do this later on after Christmas when we get into 2 Samuel. But when we see David, you will see a contrite heart. You will see a repentant spirit. He is absolutely broken before the Lord. You don't see that with Saul. And the other thing I want you to observe here is the term transgress. I read in the ESV translation, and, and correctly, they've chosen to translate that word transgress. You could translate that, I overlooked the commandment. That's a self-serving, superficial statement. Absent is contrition. Absent is repentance. He's still the narcissist, trying to justify himself. And then he adds, not only he, he, he uses this shallow word for sin. I overlooked the commandments. No, you didn't. You blatantly, intentionally, defiantly rebelled against God. Don't tell me you overlooked them. Samuel doesn't respond like that. And then he adds, oh, but, but listen, what really motivated me was I was afraid of the people. <laughs> he was afraid who just said. Instead of being afraid of the people, he should have been afraid of God. Instead of the fear of people, he should have feared the Lord. And so, I mean, you just see Saul consistent with his character. This isn't genuine repentance. There is no contrition here. Somebody... Jim, I was just going to comment. It's To me, it's always been ridiculous that he would fear the people. I mean, he's the king, crying out loud. <laughs> and and it's just that he's afraid of being maybe unpopular, or I, I don't know what. But good it, good comment. A, a politician today where he's up for re-election next term. I mean, he's the exactly. king. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like how you put that. He He values the favor of the people more than the favor of God. And he is, he's, he, you're right in a sense, he's like a modern-day politician who will say things and twist things so that his image before his constituencies, but he doesn't care about the truth, doesn't care about anything, it's just the image. And that's where Saul's at. Yeah, I, I will give a, a term to this later on when we get to the next chapter. But Saul, Saul, is, Saul is a man to be pitied. He's a man you can feel sorry for, but don't let that go too far. He's the king. He is to lead by serving and showing. What a failure in that sense. Always remember this from the Bible. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. And Saul isn't even close to the standard. He doesn't care about the standard. He cares about one thing, himself. And it's a, it's a tragic, it's a tragic response in Saul's part. You, you, you expect more at this point. He's been caught red-handed with defiance. He's still trying to justify himself. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, think about that. What does the phrase return with me, what does that mean? What, what is he asking Samuel for there? Buddy up. Yeah, because my public image is at stake. If you go with me and the people see you with me, everything's going to be okay. And God says, time out. It's not okay. So, I mean, again, I mean, it's just this remarkable character of Saul. He has been caught defying the living God, and he's still trying to rationalize, still trying to downplay it with the words he uses. And then he says, look, Sam, pardon me. Go with me so the people can see you're with me. I love how Samuel responds in verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. 
where you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. I am not going to give the appearance that I support or I accept what you said. Samuel turned to go away. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord, note, it's Yahweh there. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than yours. Now, I want you to observe two things here about verse 28. As, as the, the, the figures are quite, as you just tore my robe, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you this day. <clears throat> Why did Samuel say it that way? Legally. In God's eyes, you are no longer the king. This day, you've lost it. And then the verb tense, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, has given his past tense. God has already made the decision. You're done, and he's shifting to somebody else. And we will learn that, of course, someone else is David, the son of Jesse, in Bethlehem. But, I mean, this is... Uh, I don't know what other way to put this in verse 28. This is the decisive word from Samuel. You have crossed the line. It's done. It's over. This day you've lost the kingdom. And he has already passed tense. God has already given it to somebody else. Verse 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that he should have regret. Who's the glory of Israel? To whom is he referring? God. Don't expect by your shallow confession it's going to change God's mind. God is not fickle like humans are. He has made his decision. It's set in stone. The way my daughter would say when she was uh, about 18 years old, saw your toast. I mean, that's it. It's the finality to this. And it's very clear. This has been building. That's why in chapter 13, chapter 14, now this has been building. And God is now done. He's made his, his judicial decision, so to speak. Then he, that he would be Saul, said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord. What's the pronoun? Your Your God. Good night. He's still interested in the external appearance. He's still interested in the facade. Verse 31. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So Samuel says, all right, I'll stand right next to you. You bow before the Lord. It's somewhat of a mystery why Samuel agreed. I mean, it isn't, it isn't all that Saul wanted him to do. But perhaps Samuel is most interested about the in the stability of the nation. All right, I'll stand right next to you, bow before the Lord. Now I want you to notice in verse 32 <laughs> what Samuel does. Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites, as we read last week. Saul alluded to it. He preserved the life of Agag. Even though God had said, you are to execute the king, because God is now in an act of justice dealing with the Amalekites. And Agag, this is a very difficult Hebrew word here. And Agag came to him cheerfully. I read from the ESV translation, they've chosen to translate that cheerfully. Some translations take that, and it's the only time this word is used in the Old Testament, so it's hard to know exactly what it means. 
What it seems to mean is, and that's why the the ESV has shown to translate it cheerfully, there, there's like an arrogance and a defiance in the spirit of Agai. And so he appears, he appears before Samuel and presumably the elders of the nation are there too, with this cheerful, defiant, ha, ha, ha spirit. And he says, surely the bitterness of death is past. Saul didn't execute me. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. Is there any lack of clarity of what Samuel just did? Do you want me to interpret this? Because what the text says is exactly what he did. He cut him in pieces. <clears throat> Why do you think Samuel did that? Why did he execute him? And, you know, and the way he did it, it's sort of in the ancient Near Eastern world how they did things. But why, why would he execute Agag like this? I'm doing, if you won't do it, Saul, I'm going to do what God wants us to do. He has held judgment. God has held judgment against the Amalekites for quite a few years. It's now time for his justice to be done. And Saul, if you won't do it, I will do it. And so in front of the elders, we saw them mentioned up there in verse 30. In front of the elders and the people, Samuel completes the order of execution. <clears throat> Samuel went to Ramah. Remember, that's his hometown on the east side, excuse me, the west side of the Ephraim land grant. And Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You know, there is an adenum to this story about Agag, about the Amalekites, about Saul. Go forward to approximately 400 B.C., or really about 410 B.C., where in the court of Xerxes the Great, the king of Persia, and he has a key advisor who becomes his prime minister. He's called Haman. And when you read the book of Esther, he's Haman, the... Agagite. He is a an Amalekite. And in the court of Xerxes is a Jew named Mordecai. And Mordecai is identified in the book of Esther as the son of Kish. Who is the son of Kish? Saul. And remember how the Bible, son of Kish, doesn't mean literally, you know, he's a descendant of Kish. So what do you have? You have in the book of Esther the reenactment of what we just saw. It's an Amalekite trying to kill all the Jews because Haman gets Xerxes to issue an order to liquidate the Jews in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai gets wind of it and says, Esther, you got to go in and talk to your husband. You have to tell him what Haman is going to do. But you must show the complicity and the duplicity of Haman. And you remember what happens. Haman builds an execution post to kill Mordecai, and Haman ends up being executed. The completion of God's order on the Amalekites does not fulfill it, completely be fulfilled until the book of Esther. And that celebration of what happens as Mordecai and the Jews triumph over Haman, it's one of the many examples in the Bible of Satan trying to execute the annihilation of the Jewish people. It was an ancient world holocaust. 
But by God's grace, it didn't work because there was a man in the court that preserved the Jews. And he had a niece named Hess Esther. Extraordinary story. How did the Jews celebrate that great victory? The Feast of Purim. You ever, you're familiar with that? It's a great feast. It really is. The Feast of Purim, P-U-R-I-M. Every time, every time they celebrate it, now, it's, it goes on in the family. It's supposed to be in the family or maybe in a synagogue. The father or the leader reads the story of Esther, and the, the children love it. Every time Haman, in, in the story, as he read, every time Haman says, they go, boo, boo, boo. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, yay, yay. And they have, they have these special, uh, special uh, oh, what would you call them? They shake them. It's like a rattle, but it makes a really distinct noise of joy and celebration. Feast of Purim is one of the great feasts of the Jewish people. It was ordered by Mordecai at the very end of the book of Esther. It becomes one of the great celebratory holidays of the Jewish people. But it, it, it indicates the end of the Amalekites as Mordecai, a descendant of Kish finally does what Saul was unwilling to do. That brings the completion to the story. That's a great that's a great book. I love the book of Esther. There you see the providence of God. Yep. In the last sentence in verse 35, Lord regretted and he also regretted just before the flood. Is there any other times that he regrets? <sighs> Well, that's good. I'm trying to think through. I'm thinking through the Bible here. <laughs> of uh, you're right. It regrets that he had created man. He brings the flood. Um, I believe Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, one of the last kings of Judah. I think it says that the Lord regretted. Manassas, but I, for the most part, I don't think I, I can't think of another major example. That's really a really good question. I'm sorry I can't give you a definitive answer. It's not a normal thing you see of the Lord, but there are perhaps other there are perhaps other examples. You hit the two highlights in the Old Testament. Sorry, I can't be absolutely definitive there. I'm just I'm continuing to think through the scriptures. But anyway, all right, let's ask a question. <clears throat> Why did God allow Saul to be king? It was a disaster. It was an absolute catastrophe. Obviously, in God's sovereignty, we maybe would use a verb like God permitted it. God allowed it. Because of what Deuteronomy 17 says and because of what Genesis 49 says, the king of Israel will be from the tribe of Judah. The scepter will never depart from the tribe of Judah, Jacob says. is a prophetic statement about Judah. We know that David is from the tribe of Judah. We know that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. So why did the Lord, again, let's use this verb, why did the Lord allow Saul to be king? What were his purposes? Let me suggest this, this is something that I think is a reasonable set of conclusions. First of all, Saul is king exposes the people of Israel to a fearful, self-centered king. And the effect that kind of king has on the nation. If you put it this way, was Saul a Deuteronomy 17 type of king? Absolutely not. So God, in effect, is saying, okay, you wanted a king? You demanded from Samuel a king because you wanted to be like the other nations, quote-unquote. I've given you a king like the other nations. 
He's self-serving. He's self-indulgent. He's self-centered. He's a narcissist. And he is a man of fear, not of faith. This is what happened. Second, it exposes to the people, it exposes the weakness of a leader who is not dependent on the Lord. The contrast will be David. They will see what it's like when a man's dependent on Saul isn't. As we've said many times, I said it this morning, you see no evidence of contrition, no evidence of repentance. You do not see Saul in fellowship with the living God. He goes to God in crisis and that's it. I think the third reason God permits it is the king must walk by faith and dependence on me. If he does not, you as his people, he is to shepherd you. You will suffer. Leaders are always called to a higher standard. And the leader that God blesses and honors is a leader who's dependent on him. Saul was anything but dependent on God. And as the king of Israel, that had devastating consequences for the people. Can you ask this question in kind of a different way? Sure. And, and so God allows that so the people see what you just said. But the question, do they see it? I mean, all the time I'll say, the American people want this. Well, there's a lot of us. How do you know what they want? And it's the same How do we know that? Hundreds of thousands of people or mm. a thousand Israelites. Oh, I get the message. Mm-hmm. I'm not that. We well, see it. it. Yeah. Well, you're asking the $64,000. Now we should say $2 million question in our way things are inflated. But here's what God, here's the, here's the lesson God wants people to learn. Do people learn that lesson? Bill, I have to believe, and we do know that from, from David and so on. Many people do. Many people do learn a lesson, but you probably could conclude most people don't. But God is giving an opportunity to learn. God is giving an opportunity to learn the lessons he wants to teach. How many times does God have to teach us the same lesson? Every day. I don't know about you, but I rarely get it the first message. God has to keep sending it again and again and again. Okay, Lord, finally. Okay, got it. I'm being a little facetious there, but I mean, you've raised a really important, relevant, relevant question here. Did the people really get it? Some did, and especially among the leadership, because of how what they will do with David and how they will do with David in these next 10, 12 years, because the next 10, 12 years. Well, actually, it's more than that because you're going to have David as a young man. But then as as David gets into the court of Saul, it's going to be almost 12 years where Saul is chasing David all around the Judean wilderness. And, you know, you have to ask, why is God doing that? Why is he doing that? He said David's going to be king. As you're going to see in the next chapter, Samuel anoints David king. He goes down to Bethlehem to to the house of Jesse, and he finds this little shepherd boy and says, you're the king, and anoints him. Which, you know, I've, I've always thought, how did David process all that? But it's, that's it. David's a teenager. It's not going to be till he's 40 years old that he's the king. He's going to rule seven years in heaven and then 33 years in Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's a long time. What's God doing? Building character. He's building David's character. And God takes his time in building the human character. How long did he take Moses? Woody knows the answer to this. 80 years. 40 years in the court of Pharaoh, 40 years in the Midian Desert, then he's ready to be the deliverer. How long did he, how long did it take him to perish of Paul? Paul meets the Lord on the Damascus Road. It's not until 13 years later that he's called out in the first missionary journey. God takes his time. B. Raymond Edmond wrote a beautiful little book. I still have it. It's an old yellowing paperback book in my office, but I look at it a lot. It's called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. And one of his chapters is entitled The Discipline of Delay. We want it immediately, and God says, you're not ready. You are not ready to do what I want you to do. 
I've got to prepare you. And so Saul's the great disappointment. Chapter 16, we shift to a man after God's own heart. He will be called that in the Old Testament. He will be called that in the New Testament. It's David. David is mentioned in 66 chapters in the Bible. David is, there are 59 references to David in the New Testament alone. David is a very important figure in biblical history. David is a very important figure in redemptive history. Because who is the son of David? Jesus. The very first verse of the New Testament is, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, comma, son of David, comma, son of Abraham. So we are about to study the most important king of Israel. But as the Bible always does, it will present his character to a world. He will present his failures. He, God, will present his failures as well as his successes. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? A little bit of a spiritual two-by-four. God takes it and slams Samuel along the side of the head. Knock it off, Samuel. You've grieved long enough. I just paraphrased verse 1. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his son. You trace, you trace Jesse back. You go back to the last verses of the book of Ruth. And what do you see? That from the marriage of Ruth and Boaz will come a grandson, Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. If you go back to Genesis chapter 38, Boaz in the line of Judah and Tamar, which is a story. So you're seeing God is setting up the genealogy. David is from the tribe of Judah. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? Saul hears it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you. Say, I will come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. I love this. When they came, he looked at Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. I love this passage. For Yahweh sees not as man sees. Man looks, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Hebrew is literally, this is the Hebrew here. Man sees the eyes. Yahweh sees the heart. That's the little Hebrew there. Samuel, do not follow your standards of greatness, your standards of leadership. You look at the outward. Man sees the eyes. Yahweh sees the heart. What's God looking for? 
a man after his own heart. That's a pretty significant criterion. And who in the world can determine that criterion? Only God. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Lord Jesse said, Shema passed by, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. You could translate that in Hebrew, the smallest. And behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here to enjoy the peace offering. Because Samuel brought the heifer, they're going to enjoy the peace offering. And he sent and brought him in. Now notice these words in verse 12. Now he, this would be, we don't yet even know his name. We'll find out his name in just a minute. But this is the smallest, the youngest of Jesse's boys. He was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes. He was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And then extraordinarily important, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I, I love that translation, rushed upon. It's the, the language there is overwhelmingly coming upon David. Everything David needs to be king is now provided for the Lord. His spirit now indwells David. Notice the next verse. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. There we see one of the functionary statements of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit came upon individuals for service and ministry. The Spirit comes upon the builders of the tabernacle. If you read back in Exodus, some of those involved in the building of the temple. But here, the king, the shepherd king of Israel, has the resources from God to do his work, the Holy Spirit. And those two verses are connected. The Spirit rushes upon David. The Spirit departs from Saul. That's why in Psalm 51, after David's horrible sin with Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah, he prays to the Lord, do not take your spirit from me, O God. You did it with Saul. Please don't do that. And that contrite, repentant heart that David shows. So I, I'm going to have to quit because I see the time. But we're at a crucial turning point now in the history of Israel. God has just ordered Samuel to anoint a teenager from the tribe of Judah, not Benjamin. The Lord has given him the spiritual resources he needs to be the shepherd king of Israel. And he's taken that spirit from Saul because of his defiance. Now, you would expect that immediately David would be the king. That's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, we will see in verse 14 that a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the spirit of the Lord is taken and a harmful spirit comes upon Saul. If you want to know what that means, you have to come back next week. It's a very, very important phrase, harmful spirit. Yes. We've got to really dissect that. All right. I've set it up like a an American soap opera. You can't wait to come back to class next Wednesday. Pick up that may 14. or may not be true. You're going to pick but up then, 14 next week? I will start with verse 14. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Let me pray. And I've got to go and you guys have to go. I hope you will enjoy this summer weather that we're having. Father, thank you for the clear instruction about Saul and why you took 
the kingdom from him and why the spirit left him. Lord, that's such a sad figure, such a sad character. But Lord, in so many ways, Saul's whole demise and downward fall really goes back to his beginning. He was not a man of faith and dependence upon you. He's a man of fear, a man who contrived and manipulated things for self-serving ends. And finally did him in. He's a tragic, tragic figure. And we'll start to see you develop now the character of David. He has the resources he needs. He's been anointed. The spirit is upon him. But he is not ready to be king. And you're going to put him through your school of preparation. You're going to put him through the, the lesson after lesson after lesson to teach him dependence on you. So that he can be the Deuteronomy 17 king you want him to be. Lord, I know that's true in my life. I suspect it's true in every one of the lives of these men. You take your time in growing and maturing us. Because it is over time that we learn the lessons of faith. Therefore, may we be men of faith. Men of faith who seek to represent you in this dark world as your salt and as your light. Enable and empower us to do that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.